Hello, everyone. This is Eric Pennington, and welcome to the Spirit of EQ podcast. We're glad that you've tuned in. A few things we wanted to tell you at the beginning of the show, and that's this podcast was created to be a tool to help you, primarily to discover and grow your EQ. Science and our own lived experiences confirm that the better we are at managing our emotions, the better we're going to be at making decisions, which leads to a better life. And that's something we all want. We're glad that you've taken out the time today to listen and hope that something that you hear will lead to a breakthrough. Hey, one last thing. We'd really appreciate a review on whichever platform you use to listen. And if you want to, leave some comments about what you heard today, as well as follow and subscribe. That way you won't miss a single episode as we continue this journey. And with that, the show begins. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Spirit of EQ podcast. This is Eric Pennington with you today, and we have a very special guest, and I want to say special because I've known this gentleman for a minute, and he's always been insightful for me personally, and selfishly, as a doctor, I've been able to lean on him when I've had experiences that didn't quite make sense. So there's the definition of special, but Mickey Leibowitz, MD, is joining us on the Spirit of EQ podcast. Welcome, Mickey. How are you? I am well. Thank you, Eric. What a treat to be with you. Always is a treat to be with you, Eric. Hey, even when we don't record, it's that way for me, Mickey. You know that. <laughs> um, so uh, the great part about this is um, if those of you who have followed the Spirit of EQ podcast and Spirit of EQ in general, we did an EQ Conversations video cast. This must have been a couple of years ago. And then uh, that was probably in the midst of COVID. And then as things have turned, I I've always wanted to get you back on because obviously, I mean, healthcare has been sort of front and center for the last three and a half years, right? Um, so I'm going to dig right in and, and kind of start with this question for you, Mickey. Um, when you think about the healthcare system as it's constituted, and, and I'm going to kind of lean heavily on the on the people side of it, the the human interaction, uh, whether that's between a doctor and a patient or with a doctor and a nurse or anything of that nature. What do you think are maybe some of the fundamental problems as you look at the healthcare system? And, and I would say, and I'm always bad at this, Mickey's bio will be in our show notes, but Mickey, you've got a long history of being a practitioner, being a teacher. I mean, you've done a lot of things. So as you look at the healthcare landscape, what do you think are some of the fundamental problems? Well, I'll speak from the uh, the side of the uh, the provider or the physician or the mm -hmm. clinician, mm -hmm. um, and uh, there are, you know, there there are many things that make uh, the job very challenging. And if I could preface my remarks by saying that, uh, you know, it takes a long time, especially from a physician standpoint, to get through all the training. And actually get out there and and practice uh, as a as a, a physician. I mean, for me personally, it took uh, several years, five years of undergrad. It took uh, four years of medical school, an internship, a residency, a chief residency, and a fellowship. So it was fifteen years to before I finally got my quote unquote first real job. And wow. uh, somebody might imagine that along the way, that um, <clears throat> when you finally get out and practice. It'd be a really enjoyable kumbaya time. And uh, because you put the time, effort, energy to achieve a particular expertise. 
And uh, as it turns out, it's not it's not always kumbaya. There's a lot of there's a lot of friction within the system. In mm-hmm. fact, I wrote about this in uh, a book that I uh, authored back in 2009 when I left my uh, private practice. Uh, the name of the book is called Losing My Patience and Why I Left the Medical Game, because in a, in a, in a way it did become a game. Uh, and uh, so I highlighted many of the challenges that physicians were facing back then. And unfortunately, uh, many of the issues that were present back then are present now and even worse. In fact, the the title of the book, Losing My Patience, came from when I was doing research on the book and I was looking back at issues in 2007 and then looking back at what was going on in 1997 and 1987, I said to myself, man, I'm losing my patience with this stuff. And uh, and that's (laughs) the title of the book. Yeah. In the book, what I highlighted is uh, the challenges not not really seeing patients, uh, because seeing patients is what we were all trained to do. But really, the challenges in healthcare from a physician standpoint came from all the uh, outside influences on the physician to deliver the care that they would like to deliver and the patients would like to receive. And you might ask, what am I talking about specifically? And what I highlighted in the book yeah. was um, <clears throat> the... Uh, the bureaucracy, all the regulations, all the the uh, the pharmaceutical companies, although they do wonderful things in producing fabulous medications, they're too expensive for many of the patients to afford. So you might make a great diagnosis, uh, a, uh, have a treatment plan, prescribe a medication, and before you know it, the patient comes back and you ask, did you take the medicine? They go, no, I couldn't afford it. And all that good work goes down to nothing. So regulations, the pharmaceutical, um, the uh, insurance companies have really in, in, uh, influenced the type of care that we could provide by rejecting um, by rejecting tests that we might order or medications we might order. They put an enormous pebble in our shoes and make a hard day even harder. Um, yeah. There's also the risk of malpractice. It uh, ha- happily, it hardly ever happens. Uh, for me, it only happened once. To happily, it's the worst day of my life when that happened, and I, I still feel, find that to be a, a huge scar, even though it's twenty five over twenty five years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's always in the back of your mind, gosh. If I if something doesn't work out, am I going to get sued? And uh, what could be more abhorrent to somebody who's dedicated their life to making people's lives better? than the threat of, you know, somebody suing you because you might have done something wrong. And listen, let's face it, we're all human and we're all trying to do the best we can for our fellow humans. And yeah. not everything works out the way you want it to. So it's a, it's a little bit of a long-winded answer, but I think the, the biggest challenge from a physician standpoint is uh, the outside influences that can impact how we want to deliver care to the patients that are trusting us to receive that care. Yeah. Oh, that's great, Mickey. Uh, that's great insights. And I, I'm going to touch a little bit about the the malpractice thing, um, because I think it goes to something. And I know we're going to talk a little bit about EQ here in a minute, but this idea of intrinsic motivation. I, I've always approached my health, um, e- even when I didn't do it very well, that it's my responsibility. Uh, I looked at my physicians, and I still do, as advisors, maybe consultants, if you want to call them that where I come in, they they diagnose, they they give me insight, 
and then they give me options. Um, I might decide to take option two and not take option one and three. Uh, and I've even said to my wife, I said, I would be more than happy with my physicians to sign a document that says I hold responsibility in my lap. Now, I do understand that there could be something where it is negligence. It could be something where the doctor should have known, should have crossed the T's and dotted the I's. I get all that. But I think in most situations, um, I, I see far too many people that are willing to cede their autonomy or management of their health to a physician. And I, I say that in light of, you know, kind of this idea that somehow, Mickey, if I come to you as a physician, just tell me what I need to do. Just tell me how much, tell me when, and um, I'll just look, I'll just, I'll rely on you to just tell me how to, to manage my health. And I just did, I'd never have thought that. So it comes to that idea about intrinsic motivation. And, and I get it. It's not always as clear cut as it is maybe for me. Some people maybe are not in that place, not ready to take that on. But when I think about that, it makes me realize that the importance of emotional intelligence in that regard, right? In this intrinsic motivation that, wait a minute, I'm not going to rely on external forces to help me or to direct me to make certain decisions for something that I'm responsible for. So that's a long-winded way around to come to asking you, do you think, whether it's a physician or a nurse or an administrator, could they benefit from the work that's found in EQ? Well, certainly everybody in the whole world could benefit from uh, the emotional intelligence. It would be a much more peaceful, verdant world if uh, people uh, did practice emotional intelligence and the right. and the art of doing so. There's and we could talk a lot about that. But to be specific yeah. about uh, EQ and healthcare, uh, you know, to to take the sports metaphor again, uh, mm-hmm. I, I look at myself as a coach and I look at the uh, the patients, if you will, as the players. So right. I could stand on the sideline and uh, and and yell out instructions. Let's say to somebody as an example who has diabetes, and I could say, you know, uh, eat less, move more, take your medications, and in the end, you you just hope that they they will do so. But the, then the question is, well, how do you help somebody uh, uh, bring to light, if you will, their own intrinsic motivation? And mm-hmm. that's where the that's where emotional intelligence comes into play. Because um, as a physician, you have choice and it could be my way or the highway. This is what I say to do. And if you don't do it, then, you know, you're out or better yet, which was my style, is you could really be a a chameleon. And what I mean specifically about that is I have to basically understand who's in front of me and what makes them tick. Mm-hmm. And in order for them to, in order for me to better understand what makes them tick, I have to have my own level of self-awareness. What am I feeling with that particular person at that particular time? Then I have to basically understand what uh, to be socially aware. What makes them tick? You know, what really motivates them? What, what are their obstacles? Uh, what are their barriers? What are their challenges? Mm-hmm. Based upon knowing how I think and feel and how they might think and feel, then I could use self-management, which is my ability to make to make decisions, That I, knowing that I have choice. I could say one thing, I could say another thing, 
But what are the what is the exact right thing to say for that particular person to take it to the next level of EQ, which is relationship management? What do I do and say, and how does it impact that particular person? And does it enhance our relationship? And to that end, build trust. Because as one patient said to me uh, not long ago, he said, Doc, I think you care more about me than I care about me. I think he was right, actually. And, uh, and, And despite some of the obstacles that he has, the fact that I cared so deeply about him that he trusted me so 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 um, uh, uh, well that he was willing to follow my instructions. Wow. Then the last the last piece, once I know how I think and feel and and I'm self aware and social aware and I've self managed, I made decisions based upon that and I've uh, enhanced our relationship by building trust. It comes also down to. What do we want and what don't we want, which is self-direction? So uh, I think that there is a lot that could be uh, benefited by uh, the, the physician's or clinician's ability for emotional intelligence. It just gives great opportunity to build that relationship and that rapport, that trust, will, which will then, uh, uh, I think, encourage the patient or the person who you're working with to do more for themselves because sometimes they just don't even want to let you down. Yeah. They want to let you down. So uh, Mickey, uh, and I've heard this from those in the healthcare realm. I just, I don't have time to do all of that. I, I, I can only, I'm, I'm required to spend a certain amount of time with each patient or um, we, we've got a caseload of X, Y, and Z. What do you say to those folks? So uh, let's take um, let's take a, a scenario. How how long does it really take? Let's take empathy. Somebody just tells you a story. You know mm-hmm. they they they're telling you uh, the, how they they fell as an example and they hurt themselves. How long does it say? Wow, that must hurt like heck. How you doing? How you holding up? You know mm-hmm. we use uh, one of the great skills or strategies that um, that I use. And it was taught to me through six seconds was this concept of the vetting. If somebody tells you a story, validate the E, explore and T, transform. And it doesn't take very long. In fact, it doesn't take any longer to let somebody know that you feel with them. And then Mm -hmm. explore how they're feeling and then help transform them. Boy, you fell. That hurts like heck. How are you holding up? You know, and then T. And what can we do next to help you get better? Yeah. Wow. So you've made a great argument there. Um, so what do you think is the resistance to it? And don't get me wrong, Mickey. I, I know that the weight of EQ is not on your shoulders for the healthcare system of the United States. Um, but um, and, and maybe I should ask it this way is, do, do you see the things that we're talking about here starting to permeate inside of the healthcare system um, or, or or not? Well, uh, the, the, the issue for, we have a saying in medicine that the eyes can't see, the ears can't hear, and the hands cannot feel what the mind does not know. Mm. And my concern is that uh, physicians may not really know uh, or fully recognize, and I'm talking about, and I'm certainly not talking about everybody because, right, you know, sure. so, um, 
it's you know it's diverse population yeah. but there are many who may not know um the value of emotional intelligence and may not be aware of the value of being self and socially aware of self-managing relationship management of self-direction they may yeah. not know the uh this any the strategies and, and they're just going by their uh instincts and instincts could be good sometimes but the beautiful thing about emotional intelligence which i uh, talk about at workshops. I have to give a workshop this afternoon to a group of uh, physician assistant students where I'm the medical director. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, to give them a structure and a strategy on how to use emotional intelligence to be able to engage uh, their, their patients. And the beautiful thing about emotional intelligence is it, it doesn't like all of a sudden leave you when you walk out of the, the clinic or the office or the hospital. It's something that's transferable and can be used in your personal life also and can right. really enhance your relationships with family and friends. So I think that uh, that physicians and this is another thing, you know, how do you get in the, how do you get in the medical school or how do you get um, how do you get promoted or awarded through training? And that is based typically about on your intellect. And mm-hmm. people don't really uh, reward you for your abilities to in, to connect with other people. So it's not really taught. It's like either you have it or you don't, which brings up another beautiful thing about EQ, which is it's a competency. It's something you get better at. Yeah. But it comes down to one old riddle. How many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is one. Light bulb has to want to change. And, you know, for physicians, you know, who are busy, you know, do they have the capacity to change or do they even want to change? Uh, Yeah, because, you know, that's interesting when you mentioned that. uh, And I'm thinking about my own experiences. Um, The I I have a a personality that is um, uh, and and thanks to the Enneagram, it's helped me understand this about myself. Um, I'm not one that does well with being uh, told what to do. Um, and maybe in my younger years, I had issues with authority, <laughs> uh, never went over into crime, but, uh, the fastest way to get me to buck up against it would be someone telling me you better do this, or you've, you, you're going to have to do this. Cause to me, that's a rallying cry to go, well, no, I'm not right. It's your trigger. Right. So I've thought about physicians that I've had in my time uh, where the ones that approached me with this, uh, you need to do this, you need to take this, no questions asked, you just need to do it because I'm telling you, I know. And I just think back and go, if they had been more aware, if they would have been more, they might have said to themselves, you know, that's not going to work with him. That that I, it's very clear that is not going to go well. So I need to adjust. Maybe I need to. Maybe I need to just. You know what? We don't have to immediately do this. I need to spend more time in developing slower because there's a trust gap. Whatever it may be, right? And I, I just what you were just saying. It, it just makes me realize if there's that gap from a patient perspective. If I feel like. No, you're 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 just trying to instruct me to follow rules. I'm I'm going to recoil. And someone could say, "But Eric, they're a doctor. They know so much. They've got this 
And you know what? They could be a nuclear physicist. They 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 could be Stephen Hawking reincarnated. <laughs> I I I my personality. That's it's who I am. Right. Um, so here's something I I, I got to also go from an empathy standpoint for physicians. Um, I know that at least the ones that I've experienced, and even in in the time that I've known you, Mickey, there's a tremendous level of care, a desire for the patient to have a good outcome, right? I think at times they've got to be feeling some levels of burnout on, on two fronts. And let me, let me unwrap that a bit. You have patients that are not doing what they need to do to manage their own health, lifestyle and such. And you got that system that you just talked about both coming at them. I got to believe at some levels, there's some of them are saying, why in the world am I still doing this? Why in the world should I continue to bang my head against the wall when it doesn't seem like it's moving in a positive direction? So can we talk a little bit about burnout? What, what do you what do you think that's, uh, how's that playing a role in, in this dynamic? Well, <clears throat> since you brought, since you bring it up, uh, um, you know, the, the uh, studies have been coming out over the last uh, now many years and uh, and has been intensified through COVID is that right. the burnout rate is at least half the docs. And, and the old joke there is half the docs are burnt out and the other half just lie about it uh, because the pressures of the job are just are just so, are so enormous. So. Where do I think it's coming from? Well, first of all, the definition of burnout is by Christina Maslach, who's one of the godmothers of burnout. And the definition is based upon uh, people feeling emotionally exhausted, cynical, and feeling that whatever they do doesn't mean is not meaningful. It's uh, the personal accomplishment is low. So if mm-hmm. you have any one of those three, then then by definition you have burnout. So when they say half the docs are burnt out, when they answer surveys. They answer positive to one of those three areas. The other thing about burnout that I keep in mind is that trying to save the, uh, solve the same problems over and over, that could burn people out also. Mm-hmm. So where does it come from? Well, if you look at the studies, it comes from docs doing a lot of things that docs never really signed up for. So all the bureaucracy that needs to go right. into it, all yeah. the regulations, all the documentation, all, all, all these things that... All we really, all we really want to do is take care of people, interact with people, and make people better. That's what we want to do. What we don't want to do is all this other stuff. And what we don't want is to be intruded upon by outside forces, which have really um, integrated themselves into medical practice. So where does it come from? It comes from there. And it's really um, the, the burnout also might be associated with something called moral injury. And that is to say, when you have somebody doing something that they know is not right, um, then it creates this uh, uh, this additional pressure on them. So, as an example, mm-hmm. you know, when I when I was back in practice, and I'm still very I'm still very clinical. I still do all the and I'm an endocrinologist, so I do all the endocrine uh, consultations at our hospital, and I oversee our diabetes program. So I'm, I'm very clinical. Um, <clears throat> but when you have people uh, who are in private practice uh, being told that they have to see a certain amount of patients in a certain amount of time, that goes against their grain. It's not how we were trained. And mm. but we're asked to do these things and we're, we're kind of pushed to do these things uh, because many of us are employed 
or based, based upon reimbursements, we feel like we right. have to see a certain number of patients uh, to not only, uh, you know, to uh, pay our expenses, but also to take home uh, a living that we think is commensurate with the amount of responsibility uh, that we are put, that put upon us. So mm-hmm. moral injury is if you ask if you ask um, doctors when they signed up to go to medical school and become a doctor, and they they weren't they they weren't doing it because they could see you know uh, a patient every ten minutes they were doing it because they wanted to take care of people, and now all of a sudden they, they're asked to do it you know see see more people um, and uh, and do it quicker. When I uh, one of the reasons why I left my private practice. Well, I was employed at that particular time because I thought that was a, one of the ways I could survive all the uh, outside influences on my practice. But mm-hmm. when I left, when I was leaving private, I was actually giving an ultimatum. I was working so hard. I mean, 80 hours a week would be part time for me. It was all day, every day, nonstop. And, uh, you know, so uh, and I was I was on the list of best doctors in America every year annually. And uh, I had a waiting list six months long for people to get in. But the people who own the practice said, you got to You got to see more patients. And I said, I, I cannot physically see more patients. They go, well, we're going to cut your pay. And I go, <laughs> I go, first of all, as an endocrinologist, we're one of the lowest paid specialties to begin with because we don't have any procedures. And I said, well, that that would be that would be you know wrong to cut. Why would you cut my pay? I'm, I'm playing at the highest level possible. They go, but you can't, you got to see more. I can't, I can't see more patients. So I was left with an ultimatum. Do I continue to, uh, you know, practice the way I want to practice, but uh, be uh, penalized financially? Or do I want to say there's got to be a better way? And and there has to be a better way than, than just, you know, doing that. So I was faced with that, that moral injury. And I decided that uh, it was not sustainable. And, and for that reason, I left, which left a real, paucity, unfortunately, or dearth of endocrinologists, which is the lowest uh, representative specialties to begin with. So um, because of this moral injury, so um, stuff that they, they they don't think is the right thing to do. And uh, mm-hmm. you do it or you do what I did. And that is say, you know what? I'm just not going to do it. I'm not yeah. going to sacrifice myself and my patient's care. Yeah, it doesn't seem like a sustainable path for anybody. So if if I said to you, and this is kind of off of the beaten path, um, Mickey, um, from from what we talked about even uh, previously uh, offline, um, so pressurized question for you. And if you if you would need time to really kind of process it and think it through, I understand. So it's not that heavy. But if someone gave you the proverbial magic wand and said, "Okay," What would you do? What's one thing you would do tomorrow to help improve what we've just been talking about? What would it be? Well, I wrote about this in, in the book, which, by okay. the way, is still available on Amazon.com. Of course. And I'm glad and everyone should go out and buy it. I because, I, well, yeah, I got to be careful here because I, 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 have, I have I have I have sat at the feet of Mickey. Leibowitz many times, so I learned so much. But yes, and and by the way, everyone uh, in the audience, we, we will have a link in the in the show notes. But but go ahead. Um, uh, I was going to say uh, the book was a bestseller in my mother's house. She she, she liked <laughs> you know, she liked it. But what I wrote about, what I wrote about in the book was um, 
I think if I had a superpower mm-hmm. to fix med- uh, medicine, yeah. I would uh, get rid of greed. I think there's plenty of money in the system, but how it's distributed is unequal. And there's a lot of by that. Let, let me interrupt you, uh, Mickey, because you just hit something really powerful there. So if if you could eliminate greed, and I know those out there, you might be thinking, well, you can't do that because that's this, that, and the other. But it is a symptom of the problem, right? The greed factor? A symptom of the problem. Well, uh, tell me more on how you're thinking about that. Well, I, I guess what I'm saying is, is that, you know, when we think about greed, yeah, it, it's kind of... Um, it's kind of mystical. It's it's you know uh, it it is. Uh, I mean, as some would say maybe it's an emotion, but I I guess what I'm saying is it's not detectable. It's not really measurable, you know, right? No one can say, well, because you live in this neighborhood and drive this kind of car, you're greedy. You can't do that, right? Just like I could I could I could be in poverty and be greedy. I guess what I'm thinking about, uh, Mickey, is that when I look at the system. And all that's going on and what's driving it. I mean, you used the example with you about, well, you need to see more patients. Well, why do you need to see more patients? It it can't be because there's people out there dying on the street from diabetes and we need to get them seen by a doctor. So what's the motivation? And part of me thinks greed is the motivation. Yeah. So um, I think that there's people, there's, uh, an unequal distribution of money, and uh, and it I think it impacts. Uh, so there are people who have, and there are people who have not, right? And uh, and, and it shows up in in healthcare disparities, which have been well written about. So uh, mm-hmm. certain minority groups are are their care is um, you know their, their time to diagnosis, uh, uh, women of minorities, uh, uh, pregnancy issues, uh, mm-hmm. birth birth issues. So it's it's all well it's all well written, and uh, what I what I think if if you gave me this superpower, which yeah. I would very much appreciate by the way, is um, is what I wrote about in the book, and I still stand by it, is if, if if everybody really wanted to if the if what really people wanted was to take great care of patients or give them the greatest opportunity to care for themselves, then I think what you have to do is put all the P's in a pod. And what do I mean specifically? All the players, P, start with the letter P, the physicians, the patients, the pharmaceutical, the plaintiffs, the politicians, so on and so forth. Put them all in a room, put all the P's in a pod, and don't let them out until we get what's best for most. That's what I like to see. So if I had a superpower, that's what I would do. I would say, what is best for most? Yeah, and everybody yeah. gets a little bit of a piece of the pie, but not a, not. But some people don't get more of a piece of the pie than others. Well, and Mickey, and this is not just a a, a healthcare realm thing. Um, and and I, I I I've used this example in previous uh, episodes. Um, it, this this was an article I read in the Wall Street Journal about um, Harvard MBAs who've gone on to run major corporations. And uh, looking at the the dynamic of of what are the studies, what are the subjects inside of the the these um, Harvard MBA programs, 
And it was very clear from the article that shareholder value, stock price, quarterly earnings, expense control, those kind of things were the paramount things focused on. And someone might argue, well, of course, Eric, if you're going to run a business, you've got to focus on those things. But very, very little attention to character formation and development, integrity. So I, I think we're reaping the whirlwind, if you will, now. So are we really surprised if a CEO or someone who's in a position of authority does not know how to handle power? does not know how to resist greed who because what you just described is a mindset you got to have a mindset that says well of course uh it is for the most i it's not going to be okay for me to continue to do this while other people are doing that and i'm not saying that we want to control of what a doctor can make or what a wall street banker can make that's not my argument my argument is management of it, because at some point, I think when you learn, when you develop character and integrity and you understand about power and greed and the impact of those things, you can see things through a lens that says, wow, uh, this is, I, I, I'm, I'm going to start learning more about contentment. I'm going to start learning more about, you know, it's more important about other people than myself. And I think that's lacking. In the educational realm, let alone, you know, in the other places one might learn it. But it's uh, I, I'm glad you touched on this because I, I do believe it's something that it's almost like the 800 pound gorilla in the corner of the room. Um, all right. So as always, I we, we, we get so compressed with time. I want to move to a, another thing uh, with you. Um, so. It's easy for patients to say, oh, my God. Before, before we move on, though, Eric, I, yeah. think, I, think it's, I think it's worth I think it's worth saying that uh, or mentioning that the United States, which is uh, maybe maybe arguably the, the richest, wealthiest country in the world. How come yeah. our health care is is the 37th listed best health care system in the world? Yeah. Why, why is that? Is, is that is that OK? I mean, uh, people have to come to the grips with is is healthcare a right or is it you know if you have money it's you, you, it's good, you know. And uh, as a, as a physician, uh, everybody who came to my office was an MVP, a most valuable player, and I, I took care of ambassadors and high level people in high level positions. But I also took care, took care of people who were impoverished, and I got to tell you, you know, from my standpoint, they got the same care. Yeah. Right. Because they were they're people. Yeah. And they have they have a big story to tell. They have the same fears and challenges, whether you have a a lot of a lot of resources or don't. But everybody's people. And uh, I think that it's a you know, talk about mindset. And uh, if you ask me again, and and I'm I'm realistic also, and I know that we're not going to get all the peas in the pie. By the way, one of the other peas I left out were the payers. Um, so I know we're not going to get all the peas in the pub, but if you ask me if I had a superpower, what the problem is and where do I, what do I think that the, uh, the, the, the solution is, is that everybody gets a piece because in the end, we think that all people deserve to have, or have the right to have good health care. And we're going to, we're going to foster that. 
and we're gonna and we're going to distribute the money accordingly. Here, let me just give you one more example as I ramble on here, and yeah, that no is, more. you know, what, why why are there so few primary care providers or physicians or clinicians? What, why is that? And and uh, and the answer is because they get paid much less than your plastic surgeon or your uh, or your ophthalmologist. And uh, but we need we need primary care uh, providers or physicians or clinicians. Uh, people don't like when uh, physicians don't like to be called providers, and I don't like it either. But that's some of the terminology people use. But the yeah. point is that we need more people on the front lines, and it, it can be fixed tomorrow, Eric. It can be fixed tomorrow. How do you fix it? Pay them accordingly. Pay them accordingly, and you'll have more people in that position. And in so doing, you'll have more people who will have primary care, who will get preventive medicine, who won't just show up in the emergency room uh, when they're in extremists of some type, uh, because a lot of these issues have been settled beforehand. And then they, yeah, and, then, I... and then maybe people could have, uh, you know, physicians could have, and clinicians could have the time to really connect with people and they don't feel so forced and relationships are built and, you know, trust is, is established and people will do what people, the, their physicians are coaching them to do. Yeah. And, you know, the thing that you mentioned there uh, with the primary care, um, and I think it's important to note, I mean, uh, most physicians uh, did not get free um, education. Um, so, you have to assume they're carrying a tremendous level of debt. Yep. Um, they're working, which I consider to be unsustainable hours, in addition to all the things that you just mentioned. So if a primary care physician is faced with all of that and then coming to grips with the fact that they're not going to get paid, you know, commensurative, right? Um, yeah, that's a problem. And I, I think, again, I, I you know, you, you use the term greed and and that impact and i i think um when if if we were honest enough if we had the the, the level of character to address it to be able to say you know what no this needs to be eliminated from the system and quite frankly it got into the system because somebody was with a lobbyist firm i mean fill in the blank you know, legislation was passed or, you know, it was it was agreed to. And, you know, um, wow, we could talk a lot about that. Um, and and I'll, I'll, I'll spare our audience me riffing even further. So let me let me pivot and transition to um, I am of the firm belief. I mentioned earlier that uh, I am the manager. I am the one that's responsible for my health. Right. Um, I'm responsible to make sure that I am. Caring for my physical, spiritual, mental, and emotional health every day. And I should be intentional about that. So where I'm going with this, Mickey, is, is that since there is a certain level of responsibility, I'm not saying everybody's got to do it at my level or my approach. Everybody can be different. But when someone goes in to see a physician or even interacting with a nurse or a nurse practitioner, whatever it may be, what are some things you might recommend that the patient remember as they're going in for that visit? Yeah, well, um, if you wanted to make the time more efficient 
So that if you had a finite period of time, a 10 minute office visit, 15 minute, I did, I did 20 minute office visits. And the reason why I did 20 minute office visits because the cases, the patient, the, the people I took care of had, uh, uh, had extensive medical conditions. They had diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol problems, heart disease, you know, strokes, uh, uh, thyroid problems. And they were on a long list of medications. And Sometimes it would just take five or 10 minutes just to go through their medication list and to make sure that they were taking the medications accordingly, appropriately. So my point is that if you can come to your office visit and help help your physician clinician be more um, efficient with their time so that you come in with your medication list uh, that so we all know what you're taking. We're on the same page. There's no mistakes about that that we know what you're taking uh, and how often you're taking it. Cause just cause it's on the list doesn't mean you're taking it, you know, be, be thought, be um, respectful. Hey, by the way, I, I missed this, this dose two times a week. I just want to let you know, just in case my tests come back off. Um, so I would also be prepared with a list of questions that you could, that uh, you have on your mind. So, um, you know, write them down. These are the things that are most concerning to me. And so I guess my point is make your time with your physician and clinician uh, much more efficient by being prepared with a medication list, a list of questions, um, and uh, and also uh, some additional, if, if you have the wherewithal, I mean, it, it, health literacy is, is you know, it's uh, something you have to train for and have to be familiar with the terms. But if you can uh, read up on, on some of your medical conditions, and there's a lot written for people, patients, if you will, uh, about um, many of the common uh, maladies that affect people. Mm-hmm. I think those are all things to uh, to make the time much more efficient. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's great. That's great. Thank you for that. Yeah. So, uh, Mickey, what are you excited about these days? What's uh, What's going on in your world that you'd like our audience to know about, whether they can be involved or whether they just want to, you know, keep up with what you're doing? Well, I appreciate the opportunity. You know, I am one of my main missions as I as I uh, age here is to integrate emotional intelligence into healthcare, where I think there's a a, a, a significant need and a significant void. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's been my journey over the last uh, five years as I've become certified through six seconds as an emotional intelligence assessor, a practitioner, a facilitator in the vital science, and more recently as an International Coaching Federation certified coach. And uh, so I've been trying to integrate it. I've given uh, multiple workshops uh, to physicians and uh, um, nurse practitioners, PAs, uh, office staff, spouses of uh, and significant others of of healthcare clinicians, nurses. And the reason why I like to talk to the spouses also or significant others, friends and family is because uh, so that they have a greater understanding about what their loved one is going through. So especially when it comes to burnout. Yeah. So I do a lot of workshops. I do presentations. I have I do a lot of coaching for physicians who are thought to be quote unquote disruptive in let's say the operating room or have challenges with professionalism or issues with uh, uh, interpersonal relationships. And uh, and if they were in a, a medical group, that there would be concerns that that physician isn't uh, playing well, if you will, with the other 
That's not a good phrase. If they're not into in, uh, having great good interactions with their other co- with their colleagues, I yeah. do a lot of coachings on uh, uh, physician assistant students. Uh, again, as the medical director of the program, and uh, mo- and the thing that excites me as much as all that, in addition to all that, is I'm currently involved in a longitudinal research project looking at the impact of emotional intelligence on physician assistant students, and uh, and what we've showed is the value of EQ in students. That is to say students who are uh, have who are optimistic, who have uh, good well-being, which is balance of life and and um, and physical and emotional health, and maybe most importantly, good relationships with friends and family and people in the network, that those students do better great uh, with their grades, with their certifying examinations, with their preceptor evaluations. And to us, that is very exciting. And and we just uh, finished another part of our study looking at burnout and emotional intelligence. And what we've showed is that students, again, who are optimistic, who have relationships, well-being, and more, are less likely to burn out. And that yeah. really makes me even more motivated to try to integrate EQ into healthcare because it's all do it's all stuff that is learnable and competencies and if you want to you know get additional enjoyment and reduce your risk of burnout have additional success two letters eq wow that's awesome that's awesome well for the audience uh, we'll have uh, mickey's contact information if you'd like to get in touch with him about any of those things um any of his endeavors as well as uh, i i I wish, man, I had, you know, you talk about a superpower. I wish I had a superpower to control time because I got other stuff I want to ask you about. Let's uh, do it again. Let's yeah, I was going to say, so as as Every we've done before. To you, it's a good time. <laughs> so we are definitely going to have you back because there, there are some other things that I want to touch on. But I think this episode is going to be great for those that, um, whether they're in the healthcare system as a, quote, provider, or whether they're a patient, um, I just think it'll give them some some hope and direction too. So Mickey, I can't thank you enough for taking out the time to be with us. And uh, we will definitely invite you back. And for our audience, we thank you for tuning in. Until next time. Hi everyone, this is Eric again. A couple of things as we've ended the show. We hope you enjoyed it. Hopefully you're tuning in on a regular basis. We'd love it if you would give us a great review on whatever platform you're listening to the podcast. It's so appreciative and helps us as we try to get more exposure for the work we do and the episodes that we publish. And we're grateful to you as a listener. The second thing is just remember, our content is for educational purposes only. It's not intended by any stretch to diagnose or to treat anything that may be occurring in your life or anyone else's life that you may be connected to through the podcast. But once again, we appreciate you tuning in to the shows. And as always, we look forward to the next time that we're together. Take care.